Amen. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Let's turn there again. This morning I'd love to look at Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. If you need a Bible, uh, don't have one this morning, uh, we have some folks in the back who we've got some extras, so if you need one just raise your hand and they'll come make sure that you have one, all right? Um, And those of you who do, uh, Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Uh, Let's read God's word together. And it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Lord, as we enter into your word, would you help us to understand it, to rightly behold you, and as we rightly behold you, then help us to know you and know you more. Help us then to live and to work and to operate in a way that would recognize who you truly are, who you've revealed yourself to be. And that's who we get to see this morning in this awesome passage in the book of Colossians. Thank you for our great Christ of whom there is no one greater. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Well, it was in a seminary missions class that Herbert Jackson told of how as a new missionary, he was assigned a car that would not start without a push. After pondering his problem, he devised a plan. He went to the school near his home, and he got permission to take some of the children out of class so that they could help him push his car. And such were some of you. As he made his rounds, he would either park on a hill or leave the engine running in the car so as not to have to start again. He used this ingenious procedure for all of two years. That was his plan to get the 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 car started. Well, ill health forced the Jackson family to leave, and a new missionary came to that station. And when Jackson proudly began to explain his arrangement for how he would get the car started, the new man began to look under the hood of the car. And before the explanation was complete, the new missionary interrupted, Well, Dr. Jackson, I believe the only trouble here is this loose cable. And so he gave the cable a twist, and he stepped into the car, pushed the switch, and to Jackson's astonishment, the engine roared to life. For two years, 
needless trouble had become his routine. The power was there all the time. Only a loose connection kept Jackson from putting that power to work. The church in Colossae was being attacked and assaulted by other people who wanted to disconnect them from the true power that lies in Jesus. Their faith was under attack. It was under the influence of men who wanted to step in and claim Jesus to be or not to be something that he is in truth. Some were stepping into this church and they were beginning to teach things about Christ that were untrue, things about Christ that were a little bit different, things about Christ that made the church and make the church powerless. Any church that isn't rightly connected to Christ will not have any power. Whether it be in a church like Colossae where uh, men were stepping in and saying, yes, Jesus is great, but we still need to do all these things. That's the only way we can be right with God. We, We love Jesus and we're grateful for Jesus, but if we don't also do these things, we won't be right with God. Or whether it be people stepping into the church saying, Jesus seems like he's a great guy. It's just there's so much more to know outside of Jesus. If you truly want to know God and if you truly want to understand God, Jesus is part of it, but he can't be all of it. There's so much more. Or whether it's in a world like ours. Just recently, our pastor took a stand on a very issue similar to this, where the world has begun to, and even our own leaders have begun to take God's word and take it to mean things that they don't mean. What is the church to do in the midst of all of that? We need to be connected to our only source of power. If this church is going to be able to withstand the pressures of its culture, if it's going to be able to withstand the pressures of other leaders and people who are trying to infiltrate their minds with things that are not true of Christ, what this church needs more than anything is to know Christ in truth. If this church is going to withstand the storms that come from outside the church and even inside the church, it must know Christ for who he is. Paul, in these verses, verses 15 to 20, they come after a prayer of thanksgiving, right? A prayer where Paul is grateful for what God is doing in this church. And Paul also desires for God to continue to work in this church. The answer to that prayer is these verses here. Paul is going to use these verses also to step into the debate a little bit. While many are stepping into this church in Colossae, saying Christ was only a man. Well, Christ, maybe, yes, he was something like God, but he was one of many. There are others who are just like him. He isn't the almighty one. He isn't God, very God. He is something like that, but not that altogether. Paul uses these verses here to begin to debunk all the things that are stepping into this church to ruin this church's faith. And it isn't just Colossae that needs to hear this, it's us. 
if we're going to withstand the pressures in our day, if we're going to withstand the assaults on who Christ is both inside the church at times and definitely outside the church, the answer for us isn't somewhere out there. The answer is simply to look at who Christ is. When we know Jesus as truth, we'll get everything else right. When we understand who Christ is, all else will come to place. But if we don't know who Christ is, then we have absolutely nothing. If we don't know who Christ is, then we have absolutely no direction, no guidance, no reason for thinking that we'll know how to live in this life, and absolutely no reason to think that we'll make it where God wants us to in the next. In order to withstand all the pressures, in order to give God the praise that he's due, we need to know Jesus. Paul lays out for us in verses 15 to 20 two realities about Christ so that we would recognize his supremacy. Two realities about Christ so that we would recognize his supremacy. And why is that the case? Because when Christ is supreme, you have no other option but to follow him. When Christ is supreme, you recognize there is nothing that can come before him. When Christ is supreme, you recognize there's no one you would turn to, no one who has words of eternal life, no one who cares for your soul as such a good shepherd as he would. There is no one in this entire universe that demands your attention and your life like him. And when you recognize Christ's supremacy, you recognize there is no way that you will make it through this life if you do not understand his life. There is no way that your life now can reflect the glory and honor of God if you do not understand him. And so we want to behold him this morning so that we would understand his supremacy rightly and thereby respond in faith. Let's look at these two things. There's two points that we have here, two evidences of his supremacy. Number one, we'll see that Christ is supreme over all creation. And number two, we'll see that Christ is supreme over his church. Those are the two evidences of Christ's supremacy. One, Christ is supreme over all creation. And number two, Christ is supreme over his church. We'll start in verse 15, thinking of Christ's supremacy over all creation. Read with me here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We see from the very beginning here, Paul begins to describe Christ as something that we recognize, something that we're familiar with, and that is as the image of God. This is who Jesus is. And if you've heard this before, you understand this concept of being the image of God. I think it's because you recognize that you and I bear that same image. Or we bear something like it. And yet there is something altogether different about Jesus, right? In Genesis 1, we would read that God says, let us make man in our image. That's how you and I are made. 
And so we're made in a way that reflects some of what God is, a lot of what God is. And part of that is in the way that God has made us and what God has made us to do. Jesus is something altogether different than that, though, isn't he? Though we were made in the image of God, Jesus is the image of God. He isn't like God. He isn't something that reflects some of what God is. He isn't partly God. He isn't merely a version of God. He is the image of God. Maybe you've heard it this way. Those who've seen me have seen the Father. To look to Jesus is to behold God. That's what Paul begins with here. There's no mistake about it. He is the image of the invisible God. The God who was never seen before and has never been seen since, Jesus has revealed him. He is his image. That word image, you're familiar with it. It's a word that where we get our word icon from. And I think you understand that. If I were to say Michael Jordan, you would think of... Yeah, basketball. Okay. Whew, I got nervous there. I was like, oh my. I mean, I get it. Maybe this is LA, LeBron James fans. I don't know, Kobe Bryant. But okay, thankfully we got there. Um, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. Music, right? Thriller. Iconic. Michael Phelps, swimmer, Beyonce, all single ladies, right? (laughs) Trash, that's low. (laughs) But the point is made, right? There are these individuals, even in our society, that with just saying their name, you know something great about them. You know exactly where they come from, you know exactly what they do, and you know exactly what makes them great. It works that way in this life, and it's no different for Jesus. And the comparison here isn't like one of a great guy who then associates with music or basketball or singing. It's that when you say the name of Jesus, you think of God. He is the image of the invisible God. When we say Jesus, our first thought is the God of heaven. He is the image of the invisible God. The one who Moses longed to see in Exodus thirty-three twenty, but could only behold in part. The one when Isaiah in chapter 6 uh, is looking to the throne room, he sees a glimpse of glory and he fears for his life because he recognizes, especially in the Old Testament, anyone who beholds God should surely die. We are so unholy and sinful that it's actually impossible for us to see God in any way. And what great grace and mercy we have that Christ is the very image that has made him known. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God the only God, 
who is at the Father's side, but Christ has made him known. John 6, 44 through 47, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father, and truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Or Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. Friends, Jesus isn't hiding anymore. Jesus is no longer some obscure, mysterious plan by which one day all will finally see. No, Jesus has made himself known. And the good news for us is, because of that, now God is known to us. This is who Christ is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the one who has made him known. The one whom we read about earlier that Hebrews 1 says is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. This is who Christ is. If you want to sum up Jesus in one word, you have to just say God. That's who he is. And now it gets tricky, doesn't it? He's the image of the invisible God. But then Paul says he is the firstborn of all creation. And many of a religious persons have lost themselves in these words. For how can he be the image of the invisible God, but then also the firstborn of creation? That must mean someone made him. That's what firstborn means, right? It means that someone brought him forth. He's been created by someone. He wasn't always God. Someone had to bring him about. And that's descended many people into false thinking about God. All you need to do is understand the words that Paul is saying here. Firstborn. It doesn't have to mean that you are the first of many. It doesn't have to mean that you're the oldest son in your family or oldest daughter. Firstborn here has a connotation and understanding of being the one who is above all things. The one to whom all things will be given. That's what firstborn means. The Romans would have understood this, for they had this in their own society. Sometimes your firstborn son wasn't the person you wanted to get everything at the end of the day. They weren't the son that you wanted to have your inheritance. And so you would establish another son through whom you would give all that was owed to you. It was something that communicated rank, position, title, superiority, preeminence. That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus never had to be created. The point that Paul is making is Jesus is above everything that's ever been created. He is the image of the invisible God, and above all creation is him. That's Paul's point. 
There's no confusion. There's no mistaking it. And it all makes sense to us. Because the only thing that exists above all creation must be God himself. And so there is Jesus. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul goes on to make this clear to us, just how it is that Jesus sits at such a high rank. How is it that Jesus is supreme over all things? What gives him that right? Verse 16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. To sum up these words, we could say it this way. Jesus is the source of all creation. Jesus is the agent of all creation. And Jesus is the goal of all creation. That's what Paul is making clear to us here. Jesus being the Son of God, the one who is the image of God, the one who is above all things that God has ever made, is there because he made all those things. We see those words in John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, and verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made, That was made. Jesus made all things. No one ever made him. For if they did, how could he be God? But Jesus is God. By him are all things created. All the things you see here and all the things you cannot see. The particles that float in front of your face right now that you cannot even behold because your eyes are not keen to see them. Those very things God made. And what's more, everything around us, everything that exists around our planet and stretching out beyond the universe, all of it made by Jesus. Not only that, through him and for him. A reminder that All of creation is an opportunity by which God reverts all glory back to himself. Jesus is God, and we know it because we're here. We know it because we have breath in our lungs. And though we can look around and see all the things that God has made and recognize there's things we can't see that God has made, we could also look in the mirror and see we too have come from his hand. I love verse 17. It's the climax of these verses. It it brings all of it to a point in which we can't help but be in awe of who Jesus is. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold hold together you understand what that word all means you know what it is in the greek it's all it's not complicated it's everything every single last thing in existence is being held together right now 
And not merely by laws of gravity and thermodynamics and things that you can study and know, but all the things that we don't know, all of it can be explained by these very words here. They are being held together by no one else but Almighty God. Let me read something for you. You know, as I studied, I began to think a lot about the universe and had a lot of questions. So I thought, does the universe ever end? And an astronomer gave us the answer. Here it is. Right above you is the sky. Not exactly, but. Or as scientists would call it, the atmosphere. It extends about 20 miles above the earth. Floating around the atmosphere is a mixture of molecules, tiny bits of air so small you take in billions of them every time you breathe. Uh, Above the atmosphere is space. It's called that because it has fewer molecules with lots of empty space between them. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to travel to outer space and then keep going? What would you find? Well, scientists like me are able to explain a lot of what you'd see, but there are some things we don't know yet, like whether space just goes on forever. At the beginning of your trip through space, you might recognize some of the sights The Earth is a part of a group of planets that all orbit the sun, with some orbiting asteroids and comets mixed in too. You might know that the sun is actually just an average star and looks bigger and brighter than the other stars only because it's closer to us. To get to the next nearest star, you would have to travel through trillions of miles of space. If you could ride on the fastest fastest space probe NASA has ever made, it would still take you thousands of years just to get there. If stars are like houses, then galaxies are like cities full of houses. Scientists estimate there are 100 billion stars in Earth's galaxy. If you could zoom out way beyond Earth's galaxy, those 100 billion stars would blend together, the way lights of city buildings do when viewed from an airplane. Recently, astronomers have learned that many or even most stars have their own orbiting planets. You would have to travel through millions of trillions of more miles of space just to reach another galaxy. Most of that space is almost completely empty with only some stray molecules and tiny mysterious invisible particles scientists call dark matter. Using big telescopes, astronomers see millions of galaxies out there and they just keep going in every direction. If you could watch for long enough, over millions of years, it would look like new space is gradually being added between all the galaxies. You can visualize this by imagining tiny dots on a deflated balloon and then thinking about blowing it up. The dots would keep moving farther apart, just like the galaxies are right now. If you could keep going out as far as you wanted, would you just keep passing by galaxies forever? Are there infinite numbers of galaxies in every direction? Or does the whole thing eventually end? Or does it, if it does end, when does it end with? These are questions scientists don't have an answer to yet. Many think it's likely you would just keep passing galaxies in every direction forever. In that case, the universe would be infinite with no end. Some think it's possible the universe might eventually wrap back around on itself. So if you could just keep going, you would someday get back to where you started from the other direction. One way to think about this is for me to keep reading because I don't want to read the way to think about it. 
In either case, you could never get to the end of the universe or space. Scientists now consider it unlikely the universe has an end, a region where the galaxies stop or where there would be barrier of some kind marking the end of space. But nobody knows for sure. How to answer this question will need to be figured out by a future scientist. Or, I would say, by a past theologian. For all things are held together by him. Trillions and trillions and trillions upon trillions of miles of space and matter held together by Christ, by Jesus. If you want to think of infinity, then what you can think of is the fact that Jesus holds it in the palm of his hand. And here's the purpose of that for you. It isn't for you to grow weary or restless about how is it that God can do that. Think of this. Think that amidst trillions and trillions and trillions of miles of space and matter and molecules and electrons and protons and all kinds of tons that we don't even know how to pronounce, amidst all of those things, you should actually be like David and say, who is man that you are mindful of me? Because the God who is holding all things together also has a grip on your life. The God who is holding a universe together. He's not juggling some, like some kind of clown. He has it all under control. That same God has control of your life. Holding it together by the infinite power that exists in Jesus. If that is who he is, why would you entrust yourself to anything else? Why would you live for anything else? Why would you incessantly give yourself to your own desires and your own pleasures? Why would you give yourself to the lies of the world and the lies existing in our current culture? Why would you give yourselves to views of Christ that you recognize are not true based upon the validity of God's word? If this is true, that Jesus holds all things together by his own power, And in the midst of all that, he looks down upon us, each of us but a speck of dust in this entire universe. But he looks on us with love and affection and grace and mercy. Why would you not give yourself to him? Why would you continue to live as though you are the most important thing of the universe? When God has revealed it to be so, that it so clearly isn't you, but it's him. This is a call to any of you who haven't given your life to Christ to do so today. When you see Jesus, the only proper response is to believe who he is, to acknowledge who you are, and to then live your life for him. Jesus is the image of God, all things made through him, all things together held together by him, and would you think that you can avoid him? Would you think that you could disown him? Do you really think you can hide from him? You won't be able to. 
all of us one day will bow the knee to Jesus. He's asking, would you do it now? This is who he is. Jesus is supreme over all creation. I want us to secondly see this. Jesus is supreme over his church. Jesus, who made all things, as we've discussed before, is now remaking all things through the power of his grace. All that we see, all that we know, all that we behold in this universe is all by the power of Christ. And now there is a new creation at work. Jesus, who made all things. And obviously it's not in this text, sin and rebellion and the fall. It's not here, but this necessitates it. The fact that Jesus is remaking all things. As verse 18 says, the fact that he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The the fact that Jesus is remaking, reconciling, as verse 20 says, all things to himself, whether on heaven or earth, it necessitates the reality that we all know is true. We've messed it all up. But Jesus being so kind, Jesus holding all things together as he does, not only has he made all things, He has chosen to remake all things by the power of his grace, evidenced in the life of his people. He's supreme over his church. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, God, very God, the one who represents God fully, the one who represents God accurately, the one who represents God and resembles God perfectly. What we know of him is this, John 1.14, that the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. And what we have seen is glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and true. For John 1.16 says, For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. That is the church. Not only does all creation belong to him, But his church most definitely belongs to him. You know of people that are living in rebellion to God. Though God has made them, they treat him him as if they don't even know him. They treat him as if though they do not respect him. Jesus is doing a new work. Jesus is saving sinners from themselves and unto himself. And in this kingdom, in this church, he is the head. That's what that means. And you understand what this looks like, right? Like everyone stand up real quick. Just really quick. Yep, really good. Great. Get a nice stretch. Okay, now everyone sit down. Yep, very good. Why did you do that? I mean, seriously, like, why, why did you do that? Because I told you to. Right. You, you clearly understand what it looks like, right? 
When someone who has some position of leadership or some position of authority tells you to do something, you know exactly what you should do. You just do it. And I think the world operates a lot like this. You have no idea why you stood up and just sat down. I mean, it was to make the point, but you're also like, that, was that a stretch? Was it the seventh inning? Like, are we supposed to sing like now or what's happening? You didn't understand that. And authority works that way. That's what the world is doing right now. Many churches even, lording authority, trying to tell everyone to do, and the church seems so confused when it shouldn't be. He is the head of the body, the church. In the same way, you can listen to a dumb command to stand up and sit down. The point of this passage is this. Whatever Jesus says goes. Whatever Jesus desires, that we should do because he is the head of his body, the church. Jesus isn't just over all creation as the superior one. Jesus is over his people as the superior one. And all of his people do whatever it is that he wills. Whatever Jesus would want from his church, that his church does, because he is worthy of that respect. How do we know this? Because it tells us here. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What's that pointing to? It's pointing to his resurrection. And again, we have that word firstborn. And if you're thinking chronologically, I think you would recognize, was Jesus the first person to ever come out of the grave? No. So it can't be that. I mean, Jesus rose Lazarus out of a grave before he ever died. So obviously he's not the first to come out of a grave. But let me tell you this, Lazarus is back in a grave and Jesus is not. All the dead that have ever died on the face of planet earth, they're still dead. Jesus in it. He is the firstborn from the dead. The one who lives and ever will live. And the one with whom his people will live and ever will live. That makes Jesus worthy of being followed. Jesus is worthy of being obeyed because he is the beginning of what's happening in the life of this church. He is the firstborn from the dead and that makes him preeminent. Jesus is risen. Jesus will never taste death again. And all those who believe in him have that same truth for themselves. Life is his and his forevermore. What's more, Jesus is, as verse 19 says, fully God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So not only is Jesus worthy because he's resurrected from the dead and he's shown us exactly what will be true for all those who follow him, that they will never see death again. But Jesus is worthy of being followed because we're ending in the same place that we started. Jesus can be equated with God. That's what it means. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. No ounce of him was not God. That makes him worthy. 
But not only so, he is fully God and he was also fully man. And so verse 20 ends with a note that brings us every ounce of hope in understanding that Jesus isn't only preeminent, but all his promises are true. He is fully God and through him he's reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Can you see it? The one that we worship is the image of God. He has made God known. He has shown us exactly what God is like. And in doing so, he became like us. And in order to take us and make us right with God, he did what we could not do. Not only living a perfect life, not only fulfilling the, the laws and the prophets, not only, um, not only living in a way that reflected fully the will of God for his people to live in complete obedience, but he gave his blood on a cross. He poured out his life as a ransom for many. You and I, as sinners, we have no reason to be at peace with God. It is a terrifying thing for a sinner to fall in the hands of God. And so Jesus steps in and he gives us peace. That's what Jesus has done for his people. That's a Jesus you need to be connected to. When anyone tries to tamper with the person and work of Christ, you need to step back into the pages of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, where Jesus makes himself known. He is God. He has all power because he's God. And not only so, he humbled himself to the point of being a servant who would give his life for us, obedient to the point of death on a cross so that we who don't deserve peace with God could have it. And when you have that, you recognize the world truly revolves around who he is not who I am. And life is no longer about what might come your way, but life is completely about who Christ is and what he does in us. That Christ takes sinners and he saves them. That Christ takes the unlovable and he loves them. That Christ takes what couldn't redeem itself and he redeems them. I'm reminded just yesterday that I came here for a memorial service a young man by the name of Nathan Aldaco, and maybe some of you know him, passed away, 19 years old, congenital heart disease, had it his whole life, a sweet kid, a lovable kid, loved to laugh, loved to play, just a, an insane picture of what none of us would ever imagine happening. A young person going far too soon. But it was the perfect will of God to take him home at this time. And yesterday I sat there as his family gave testimony after testimony of his life and the remembrance of him and their love for him and this being a young man who loves Jesus. And on his deathbed, one of our members here at the church who knew him visited and asked him this question. I know you've told us you believe, so when you get to heaven, why should God let you in? 
And this young man's answer is, he shouldn't. I'm unworthy. But God is merciful. And I know all those who believe in His Son will be welcomed in. This is His Son. He is God. He is God made flesh. He gave His life for every single one of you who would believe in Him and live like you know that to be true. And when the world tries to tamper with your life or tamper with your faith, you can hold on to His promises that the peace you have with God now will be with you forever. Nathan now knows and sees the splendor of Jesus' glorious and matchless majesty more than any of us could ever imagine. None of us have seen Jesus like Nathan is seeing him right now. And I promise you this, all he's seeing is what we beheld in verses 15 to 20 of this chapter. He's seeing a Jesus who is very much alive. He's seeing a Jesus who is very much worthy. And he's seeing a Jesus who is God. Question for you is, how do you regard Jesus? Because that will dictate the rest of your life. Not only now, but in eternity. Pray that you would know him in truth. And if you do, to hold on to him. Because this must is true. He is holding on to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you for the testimony of Christ, the one who is supreme over all things. The one who made all things, holds it all together, and now in the power of his glorious grace is remaking those who would believe upon him. Our transformed lives now are a reflection of of what one day Christ will do in us fully and finally. Lord, we anticipate the day where we are made completely new in the power of Christ, made fit and formed in a way where we will actually be able to behold your glory. But Lord, let us never wait till heaven to behold Christ. You have made God known through your Son. May you give us eyes to see him, And when we have seen him, would you give us hearts that desire to follow him? He is worthy of our lives. I pray that we would follow him. Give us strength and an enablement to do so in the power of your grace. Amen.